fire tribe, where you at? I hope you're ready, rising from the ashes and it's getting heavy Conspiracies, we got plenty and some are scary From aliens to Bigfoot, extraordinary, yeah, yeah Danunaki Dan and the homie Romy I was bugging out, all the crazy things he showed me Jesus bloodlines to the stars in the skies Always a good time, vibing with the fire tribe Hey, So wake up, wake up, get it cracking Rise out the ashes, I know you got a passion Kick off the combo with theories, many conspiracies Other dimensions, plenty ancient history Fire tribe, where you at? Wake up we about to get into it I know you can't get enough At home, at work It don't matter, turn it up Rising from the ashes You know what's up, hey uh, Rising from the ashes Yo, what's up, motherfuckers? It's March It's fucking madness I know we're a little late on The Divine Feminine Month And we're a little late on starting March But, hey, what can you do? Uh, we got shit to do We got jobs and shit uh, and problems, life's problems, and we're trying to take care of those and get shit out to you. So speaking of problems, uh, Roman thought it would be cool to put a little background track on this episode, and it turns out that it wasn't very loud. So all you hear is just the hi-hats from the track. It's not a metronome. It's supposed to be music laid behind it, but it didn't quite turn out, and his computer's fucking broken. And there's no way to f- fix it at this current time. And so we're trying to get this episode out to you as fast as possible. So we hope you still enjoy the episode. It's got some ticks, but don't we all? So limes, baby. take it, take it and like it. So Roman told me that I had to come up with an intro for the show because I'm not good enough of a host. So. I had to write. <laughs> That's not what I said. So I had to I write said, hey, something. Dan, wouldn't it be great if we wrote things so we can give our people a concise conception of what's going on? Yeah. So I, I wrote a little something, something, and we might continue to do this to like kind of cap the show and what the reason why we're going into this whole subject is for the month. I think it's actually a beautiful way to kind of encapsulate everything that's going on and what our wonderment is in, in interviewing these guests. So I like it. It's a good idea. Thank you, Roman. You're a smart man. Or boy. Thank you. (laughs) Boy. Smart boy. So here we go. This month on the show, we are diving deep into Atlantis and Lemuria. We are trying to figure out if there's a connection from Atlantis, Lemuria to Tartaria, and our known world. The Bible starts off with a great flood and the building of an ark, which in many mythos is what destroyed Atlantis and possibly Lemuria. Perhaps there are many ancient lands now underwater. There is also a mystical land known as Kumari Kandam that existed in touch Eastern Africa, Australia, and India. Many people do not believe that this these mysterious lands existed but what we do know is there's much advanced knowledge that existed since time immemorial such as pyramids that are all over the world even underwater we have mythos of advanced spiritual knowledge architecture alchemy plumbing gold plating and some even believe the egyptians had light bulbs and there's so much more than that we have structures like Gobleki Tepe that go far back to around 9,000 BC. Many people even believe that the Giza pyramids are older than 2,500 years old, and the Sphinx might even be 20,000 years old. 
We have so much unbelievable knowledge that doesn't fit into the current church concocted timeline. There also exists the Sumerians Kings list that goes way back into antiquity, 241,000 years before the flood. The flood seems to be off-putting. Some believe it happened during the Younger Dryas. Some say 2,500 BC, especially those that want to stay in the biblical timeline. But we know or at least I believe, that the Bible is a hodgepodge of other previous known texts. It pulls from Sumerian, Norse, Hindu, Buddhism, and who knows what else. I believe that the Bible skews the history of the known world by imploring a 7,000-year timeline of history, which is why we are so out of whack. The Bach saga, on the other hand, takes us back 50 million-plus years and speaks of Atlantis being a time period of all the northern lands being covered in ice. Weighing things against the saga, I have come closer to figuring out the human history of mankind, and the saga has yet to be disproven in my eyes, and only strengthens the argument of humans being around for many thousands of years at least. Anything that existed over ten to 20,000 years ago would have been lost to nature. The coup de gras would be finding out what's in Lemminkainen Temple. Until then, the search continues, and so does ours. So welcome, Fire Tribe, to Atlantis, to Tartaria Month. Hope you all enjoy this month. It's going to be fucking bangers all month. Enjoy. So that's what I got. That's what Bangers I and mash. Bangers and mash. I so, love it. Yeah, man. I mean... You know, that's is is part of you know, in the tribal council bonfire that we did on Tartaria, Atlantis came up at the very beginning. We spent a long time on that. We're kinda didn't weren't able to get to the, some of the other topics that we wanted to talk about. But I think it's a very important part because it's this is where our knowledge base comes from. If there was no Atlantis and there was no other civilizations that existed before this flood then how did we come into all of this knowledge so quickly? It seems confounding to me. It's And then all things kind of point to the fact that there was civilization before this great flood happened. There was civilization before the Younger Dryas period. We There's Bosnian pyramids. I think I even saw that people think they have pictures of pyramids in Antarctica, which has been covered in ice for who knows how long. So there's so many things. Even Yonaguni Pyramid off the coast of Japan, they say the last time the water level was that low was like 20,000 years ago. So how is it possible that civilization just sprung up out of nowhere with no previous civilization, that humans just miraculously just appeared out of nowhere? I think that's where you get the ancient alien theory from. And that's starting to not hold so much water for me. And uh, I'm kind of going with human history as human instead of angels and demons and mythological creatures and all these other things. But I still love to entertain dragons and swamp monsters and Bigfoots and all that stuff. It's fun to me, but um, that's kind of my, my take on it. What you got, Rowan? Uh, Atlantis, huh? Mm. <laughs> mm. Juicy stuff. Um, <clears throat> this month will surely be the first of many. 
going deep into the famous lost continents. So I have a running theory, which will be mainly speculative. And you and I have a relatively solid belief that Atlantean culture penetrated the Americas. And the culture supposedly and most famously escaped the deluge and ventured east and capitalized in Egypt. And surely this kingdom was known worldwide at that time. This was likely a period in which we consider Pangaea. Continents and land masses simply had less distance of water in between to travel. And this historical anomaly of a golden age could mean that the planet was thriving with life and lush, if you will. Well, why wouldn't it be flooded with humans as well? Potentially at its height, millions of humans. And other talk of the golden age was Earth's capacity of plasmon energy running through it was extremely heightened, and the knowledge of this etheric energy was rich, cohesive, and the technology not only harnessed it wirelessly, it also redistributed it, improving overall attunement and vibratory state of the area. Now, I say area because of the fact of polarity. I believe that if one half is beaming in positive, neutral, magnetic energy, the opposite may be on a full chaotic scheme. And by that, I mean energetically chaotic, which in turn would react in weather patterns. As well, now something threw off the alignment of the poles and its predecessor is damn near impossible to know why and how. So many theories have been drawn. And some say they were using directed energy weapons antiquated, of course, possibly between Lemurian and Atlantean cultures. Some say cosmologically the Saturnian cosmology was a reason for the split of the Golden Age. And it could be inevitable in the growth of the galaxy. What's a huge deal for us is a minute deal to the actual existence of Earth. Humans were generally self-centered in our viewpoints and understanding of what reality is. A lot of times it's very human centric. Well, I'm surely not certain at all what happened, but another interpretation of these ages are described as the gods reigning as a golden race and the demigods were the silver race and the heroes were a bronze race. Hmm. This is interesting. Race and age. Those names are similar to me. The root word for race is geno or gen, as in generation. So the golden age could have been when the gods left earth. And this return of a golden age could be the returning of gods. I thought that was interesting. Um, There. And I'm going to read a small transcript from uh, the the book by John Gordon called Egypt, Child of Atlantis. Is this um, is this RFTA news? Yes. I'm so terribly sorry. We are in RFTA news. Oh. Well, let's get into RFTA news then. Angel does. <laughs> 
You're supposed to do the whole beatboxing thing, bro. F T A News. News you can trust. Angel dust. Yeah. There you go. Now you can go. So we're reading from the book Egypt, Child of Atlantis by John Gordon. I'm going to read two pages. This is uh, starting at page 56, if you guys do happen to to pick up the book. Transatlantic and transcontinental similarities in ancient names. The derivation of the name Atlas and its various offspring has puzzled scholars for well over a century, and the issue has still not been finally resolved in our modern philologist. However, bearing in mind the fairly universal basis of a creation myth in which we find fallen angels, a very variety of different heavenly worlds, and a demiurgic creator. Let us see how far we can cast our esoteric net. In the Hindu Matsya Purana, we find the tradition of seven archaic lands called Tala, Atala, being the lowest akin to an underworld, hence a perhaps unlikely suitor in the present context. But in the Hindu occult tradition, we also find that the teaching to Talas and Lokas means higher and lower worlds. That is, states of being consciousness composed of varying qualities of psycho-spiritual light substance. In Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, we find the Dalai Lama's palace given the name Patala, or perhaps Batala. Lhasa itself appears to be derived from Lhasa, meaning son of the La, La being the Indo-Tibetan expression for one of divine demiurgic creator hierarchies, that is, the Elohim. Thus, the latter provides us with something of a clue, for Atlas seems to quite logically to arise from the telescoping of the compound Adla, Ad, as in Adonai, the followers of an archetypically original divine man, Adam, being a Sanskrit word for the firstborn or primordial. We may also recall that the mythical Adonis, the lover of Aphrodite, died being gored in the thigh by the god Ares, or Mars, disguised as a wild boar. As we shall see later, this is a highly important astronomical, as well as it is a mystical illusion. The La, L-H-A, or creative solar spirits, the origin of the Celtic Lair, or the Roman Lar, which inhabited the Mayan paradise, Loka are quite clearly also the Semitic El or Allah, Adonis himself having been born in a tree trunk and subsequently forced to spend half a year in the underworld of Hades. The original Adla are, by deduction, the demiurgic creator gods of several creation myths that fell from grace into a cycle of objective existence as the divine La or Elohim of our particular star and planetary system. Interestingly, several other, by now very well camouflaged, words seem to have crossed the Atlantic between Africa, Asia, and the Americas. For example, the name Teotihuacan, 
given to the vast Mayan temple complex near Mexico City is clearly derived from Tehuti-Vahan, meaning the body vehicle of Thoth, the Egyptian god, and has three pyramids matching those of Giza. The Mayan serpent god Quetzalcoatl was given the Cucuclan, the hedge god or chief prince of the Mayan people, while the Kubilgan, the Kubilgan, or the Kubilkan, as an Indo-Tibetan expression meaning spiritual soul prince, and Kulakane was an ancient Celtic demigod with a canine companion. The combined phonetic and cultural cross-correspondences are just too close to dismiss. Thus, the inevitable overall impression derived from them all is that there is clear inferential evidence to imply the prehistoric existence of an ancient worldwide religious or mystic culture, which extended all the way from Tibet, probably incorporating China as well as with its dragon cults into Central America, and the ancient colonization of Egypt from east to west. Now, whether one regards Blavatsky's story as credible or not, her same source of information nevertheless confirmed, over a century before our most up-to-date science could do so, that the Paleoithic man began colonizing Europe well over one million years ago, and that a major geomagnetic shift has taken place just over three-quarter million of years ago. Lucky guesses? Hardly likely in the face that with uh, withering scorn and skepticism such ideas faced in the 1880s, when some Christian theologians still believe that the biblical creation occurred in 4004 BC. The fact remains that there is a greater similarity in the facial features of the native African Bantu type and the natives of Central America and Northern South America. Then there is a, either between them and the Indo-Aryan or the Hamido-Semitic types that we find in the Northeast and Northwest Africa, that quite clearly non-Semitic and Indo-European features were commonly, sh- or commonly shared by all ancient Hamidic people of the North Africa, also raises questions concerning the origins and prehistoric extent of their own quite distinctively different culture and ethnic traditions. Is it then not probable that the ancient ancestors of the Hamitic stock were indeed the Atlanto-Aryans of the Daita men mentioned by Blavatsky? And had their eastward migrations originally extended so far up around the southern perimeter of the Mediterranean and across into the Asia Minor that they ultimately met and mingled with the already mixed Dravidian and Caucasian rootstock to produce the Semites as a substock that then wholly absorbed them in this area. Mm. Is this why we find Atlantean ziggurats in the Chaldea Babylonia matching those in Central America? Mm. The defeat of the Atlanteans by the ancient Greeks. One of the other things related by the priest of Sais to Salon in the, in the story told by Plato is that the Greeks of his day were but the puny remnants of a heroic Helen stock that had lived in far earlier times than the Atlantes were busy tyrannizing the people of the Mediterranean generally. So the story went, although severely outnumbered, the Helleni fought and beat the Atlantes so convincingly that their power was finally broken. 
and never recovered. As a result, it seems that the Atlante withdrew back their own lands in the Atlantic and thereafter remained in relative isolation. Nothing further appears subsequently to have been reported about them, although there are some suggestions that pockets, some described as Libyans, came to live in northern Egypt in the western delta area. Sadly, no indication of the even approximate time spans evolved appears to have been mentioned by the priest. However, in this part of Plato's story is true, and it has been regarded as on par with the rest concerning his Atlantean island itself. Then it lends yet further credence to the suggestion of an Atlantean or Atlanto-Aryan colony in Egypt or in Libya or Tunisia. Just to the west, the parent civilization of which had for some reason retrenched leaving behind its giant temples and pyramids is mute testimony to its own prior existence. The withdrawal of political and economic control over its Egyptian colony in such fashion, however, have had exactly the same effect upon the local population as occurred in Britain and Gaul when the Romans withdrew to Rome after the Goths and Vandals attacked it. In that case, many Romans stayed behind rather than return to Rome and through intermarriage, integrated both their families and traditions completely with the local population. Now, much less than 2,000 years later, just how much of the original Roman presence can be seen? In Britain, far less than in France, the fact that people of ancient Egypt seem to have spoken Hamitic language adds further fuel onto our fire. In addition, as we shall see in greater detail in Chapter 4, Victorian ethnologists took the view from their own researches as they were distinct racial connections, not only between the language of the natives of the Caribbean islands and the Canary Islands, the Guanches, and that of the Basque, but also with the Hamitic, which I'm going to just point this out real quick. Hamitic is hermetic, probably, right? Because it's... it's yeah. It's like talking of like a white Caucasian race and generally like the Western occultists, which are generally white, old, fat, white dudes are all hermetic. <laughs> um, so, but also with the hermetic and Dravidian tongues. So an indistinct, but nevertheless, obvious ancient trail seems to extend right across North Africa from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean and also up into the heartlands of Asia Minor and thence to Tibet. So are we left? What are we left from all this? Central and Southern Africa populated south of the Sahara, probably due to an ancient submersion of the latter. Generally a proto-Bantu speaking Atlanto-Negroid people whose route appears slightly north of the equator from a point on the Atlantic coast of West Africa. That Egypt itself appears to have been colonized from the West via Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia by Northern Atlantis speaking an utterly different Hamitic root language. Like the Guanche of the Canary Islands and having distinctively Indo-Aryan features that it was otherwise colonized by the East by other Caucasian Indo-Aryans via Northwest India, the Levant and Ethiopia, that Egypt was undoubtedly colonized prior to 100,000 years ago by people with already had highly advanced cultures. 
Such a range of scenarios could hardly be more different than the prosaic one provided by the contemporary archaeological theory. Could it? Hmm. Yeah, that's good stuff. What's that book? This is uh, Egypt, Child of Atlantis. Written by John Gordon, uh, whose pretty cool guy looked into him a little bit. He's a senior fellow at the Theosophical Society of England, where he lectures on ancient history and metaphysics. He's the author of several books, including Self-Consistent Cosmos, and he lives in England. And yes, I have emailed him. All right. Received zero zero response. So. Okay. <laughs> Send him another one. Hell yeah. Uh, that's excellent. That's kind of going to tie into what I'm going to read about, too. Um, I'm going to read from uh, Marco Vigato's book, The Empires of Atlantis. I might, I might read it for the next show, too, and following subsequent shows. Who knows? Uh, this is a super great book, though. I recommend, if anybody's interested in Atlantis, to pick this book up because it is jam-packed with all kinds of fucking shit man um well this is from uh chapter six atlantis in the second age and it says we know very little of the events that followed the first atlantean cataclysm until the foundation of the second atlantean empire guinon gives the year 17,441 bc e for the beginning of the Treta Yuga, whereas the Mesoamerican Codex Vaticanus 3,738 records the beginning of a new world age in 21,142 BCE. The Turian King List situates the beginning of the reign of the Shemsuhor in the year 16,520 BCE. A long dark age must have thus proceeded the founding of the second Atlantean empire during which a new center of civilization arose in the area of the present Gobi desert. So what you have here is seemingly possibly that Lumeria and Atlantis are the same. And Lumeria was possibly what it was called before the second cataclysm of atlantis you know that's kind of what i would think uh we talked to van Gaal already which you're going to hear on the next episode but i was talking to a friend at work who's from the philippines and he was telling me that a lot of the stories there are atlantean in nature and he thinks that the people from the philippines came from atlantis which is super interesting considering van Gaal was saying that they came from Lemuria. So maybe we're dealing with just different periods of time and they had a different name to different people. And but they're actually it's the same thing. Or it's the civilization across all of America, right? Or not America, but of all the world. And it was just referred to as the Atlantis time period. Um so he goes on the Exodus. A number of concordant sources maintain that the true initiates among the children of the law of one had already abandoned the doomed Atlantean continent 
long before the great cataclysm that overtook it in 35,335 BCE. The same sources suggest that at this time, our planet witnessed once again the incarnation of highly evolved souls under the guidance of their spiritual leader, the Vaivaswata, son of the sun, Manu, who led the exodus of the children of the law of one from Atlantis and planted the seeds of the fifth root race. Interesting. The fifth root race. That's so I heard that that's not even coming until now. Like the fifth root race is supposed to be emerging now. Mm. What's his timestamp on this? The, the exodus from Atlantis. This was the seeds of the fifth root race. Aryans. Yes. Aryan nation. We're going to get into that. According to the writings of the prominent theosophists, Annie Besant and Charles Ledbetter, fewer than 9,000 people, men, women, and children, successfully made the crossing from the doomed islands of Atlantis to the western coast of Africa under the guidance of Manu. They journeyed along the shores of the vast inland sea that at the time occupied what is now the Sahara Desert, eventually crossing through Egypt and Arabia into India, and from there into fabulous white island in the Sea of Gobi, to the northeast of the Himalayas, hundreds perished along the journey, and many more succumbed to the temptation of settling among the Atlantean empires of the Nile Valley and Arabia. One of the 9,000 people who had originally fled from Atlantis, only a small group of about 700 remained loyal to the Vaivaswata. Manu, through the deserts of Turkestan and northern India, they settled on the White Island in the same place where, according to theosophical tradition, higher spiritual beings had first descended onto Earth millions of years ago to start the process of human evolution. There, the chosen few among the children of the Law of One waited for the dawn of a new cycle, that of Aryan humanity. They knew, wrote Blavatsky, that a decree had come indeed that the earth should change its race and that the fourth race should be destroyed to make room for a better one. Over the course of several generations, the first embryo of the new root race developed on the white island under the guidance of its divine masters, the city of the bridge. Although the seeds of the fifth root race had been planted already in Atlantean times, it was only after the cataclysm of 35,335 BECE that the construction of the city of the bridge, which was to become the new spiritual center of Aryan humanity, began on the island in the middle of the Gobi Sea. When completed, the sea was a marvel. From a distance, right, Basant and Ledbetter, it had the appearance of a white dome set in the midst of the blue Gobi Sea. The island itself on which the city stood sloped up to a central point of which the builders took advantage. They built stupendous temples on it, all of white marble with inlaid works of gold, and these covered the whole island, making it a single sacred city. The city proper rose in the shape of a circle with four streets arranged like a cross, intersecting at the main temple. The White Island was itself connected to the mainland by a stupendous bridge, a structure so remarkable 
that it gave its name to the city called because of its of the city of the bridge the style of architecture was cyclopean fantastic machinery was used for the city's construction employing some method of magnetization for the lifting of the enormous stones some of which were over 49 meters long in its prime at Besant and Ledbetter, the city compared not ignobly with Atlantis, and while its luxury was never so great, its morals were distinctly pure. Perhaps most important of all, over the city brooded the mighty presences of who had and still have their earthly dwelling place on the sacred White Island. Yeah, what do you think about that, Roman? I need to get that book. Is what it sounds like. <laughs> and then uh, the next part, the Aryan Empire. Soon, the mighty city planned by the Vevaswada Manu grew to become the capital of an immense empire. The first Aryan Empire, which stretched its boundaries from Tibet to the coast, from the uh, Manchuria to Siam. Aryan colonists would set out from this Gobi center toward India, Mesopotamia, and Europe. Little is known of the history of the Aryan Empire outside of the esoteric tradition. Basant and Ledbetter maintained that after thousands of years, it too began to show signs of decline as Aryan colonists set out in even greater numbers toward other lands. By 20,000 BCE, the original Aryan Empire had largely dissolved, having by then exhausted its function. With the Aryan root race and its various sub-races now firmly established in Asia and Europe, the decision was taken to move the seat of the empire from the original Gobi Center into India. Among the reasons given by Basant and Ledbetter was the need to leave Shambhala, as the city of the bridge was then called. In the required solitude, an imperishable sacred land, separate from the realms of the earth, Moreover, this was done to preserve the seed of the fifth root race from destruction, as the Central Asian region would be much altered. The convulsions that followed the great cataclysm of 10,961 BCE shattered the city of the bridge and wrought the destruction of the most of the great temple of the White Island. From the moment onward, Shambhala, the city of the bridge, would continue its existence only as an ethereal city outside of the sphere of earth. This to me sounds like that Kumari Kandam place that was like connected to Eastern Africa. Uh, Shambhala is also supposed India, to be a hollow earth city. Yeah. In yeah, hollow earth. yeah. Like it's like the, the mountains to the hollow earth. That's interesting too. Yeah. Um, and then he goes on. There can only there can be no doubt that great civilizations once flourished in what is today one of the most arid and inhospitable deserts on the planet. According to Theosophy, the Gobi was originally a gulf of the Arctic Ocean, which it became separated after the Great Atlantean Cataclysm. It existed for thousands of years as a vast inland sea fed by multiple rivers coming down from the Tibetan plateau to the south until the climate change at the end of the second Atlantean period and the rising of the Himalayas 
turned it into the desert that we know today. The Swedish explorer Sven Hedin, who famously crossed the Gobi in 1895, gathered many legends of a time when the Gobi was not yet a desert, but rather a land of many rich and prosperous cities. Another explorer, Sir Aurel Steen, was of also of the opinion that these cities did exist and that the Gobi was once irrigated by glaciers. When the glaciers melted away, so did the lost kingdom of the Gobi. The idea of a central Asian origin from modern Aryan humanity is not new, for it was first proposed in 1778 by then French astronomer, royal and mayor of Paris, Jean Sylvain Bailey. After analyzing several ancient sky charts brought back from India and European missionaries, Bailey concluded that these charts must have been drawn thousands of years earlier from a location far to the north of India. According to popular Italian mystery writer Peter Colosimo, a powerful civilization known as the Hsingnu thrived in the Gobi Desert for thousands of years before its degenerate descendants would become known to Chinese and European historians as the Huns. Two French missionaries known only as Father Dupart and La Tower visited the site of the lost capital of Hsingnu in 1854, leaving fabulous descriptions of the ruins that they encountered. They found hundreds of silver-covered monoliths, porcelain towers, and their eroded remains of a three-tiered pyramid. They also gathered stories of a fiery cataclysm that turned the whole region into a desert. These ruins, along with those of the original White Island, may still be seen today, according to French author and explorer Robert Chereau. Near the present-day Mount Addis, some 600 kilometers northeast of Lob Noor, in the the Jasakatau Khan, the idea of a Gobi center of civilization also played a pivotal role in the theories of the occult writer James Churchward, 1851 to 1936, who became famous for his 1926 book, The Lost Continent of Mu. In it, Churchwood, Churchward, Churchward speaks of the great Uyghur empire that stretched its powerful arms from the Pacific Ocean across Central Asia and into Eastern Europe. Over 19,000 years ago, using language that is reminiscent of that of the early theosophists, Churchward wrote that the history of the Uyghurs is the history of the Aryans. The ruins of their lost capital, he said, lay not far from where Kara Koto later stood. One discovery that would help vindicate the idea of a Central Asian origin of the Aryan race is that of several fair-skinned mummies in the present-day Tarim Basin of northwest China, belonging to a hitherto unknown civilization known as the Tocharians. The ethnicity to which the mummies belonged has been described as Europoid or Caucasian. One individual in particular known as the Churchin Man who died in about 1000 BECE measured a remarkable 1 meter 98 centimeters, which is 6 foot 6 inches, 
with long red blonde hair and beard. Genetic analysis conducted on the mummies uh, have shown a prevalence of Western Eurasian maternal and fraternal lineages. Although other haplogroups are present, few of which can, however, be traced down to modern living populations. Uh, Interestingly, the earliest mummies from this region are almost exclusively Europoid or Caucasoid, with East Asian groups only appearing much later. About 3,000 years ago, according to Professor Victor Mayer of the University of Pennsylvania, these findings call for a re-examination of the old Chinese book books that describe historical or legendary figure of great height, which deep set blue or green eyes, long noses, full beards, and red or blonde hair. Although the Tocharians were long considered European invaders or immigrants from the steppes, the latest evidence shows that they are in fact some of the earliest original inhabitants of the Gobi and Tarim basins. And then I'll, I'll stop right there because I could read from this all day because it's filled with shit. But there we go. Yeah. It's, it sounds like there was a lot of ties there to, um, to the, uh, you know, the Mongoloids and like that central China type of like, what area we would know is Tartaria and even yeah. a lot of those word, words in there. I mean, Aryan nation, mm-hmm. right? We've done that before. Tartarian, Tartar, mm-hmm. Aryan, right? It's about the area, Aryan nations the come from that period, area. Also could have been in the time period of Aries. Aries. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which does fit too, because it goes from Aries to Pisces to the now turning of Aquarius. Right. So, I mean, there's that. And there's people who break that shit down. But that right there is perfect segue. I felt like that was a perfect chapter to read for, the, for this, my mind. Yeah, man. Yeah. Most excellent. I wanted to uh, also just kind of debrief on what I was talking about before I read from the book. Um, the, the three... Damn. Uh, races, right? The races, the the golden race, the silver race, and the bronze race, right? Which are also ages that we had. So there was a golden race, which was the race of the gods. The silver race, which is the race of the demigods, and then the um, the bronze race, which uh, the bronze race, which is the heroes. Which I'm actually still not quite sure what that is, but also you can look at this in the same way speaking cosmologically so you know a lot of times they interpret the planets as gods yeah Yeah. right and so the ages so they they could be describing and i don't want to go too much into lemuria on this one because we're about to literally do that yeah um next week so i think that we should save a lot of that for that but i think there's something to a lot of this you know not taking things so literally in a sense um you know, of like it being a landmass and area. Granted, these landmasses did exist above water at one point. There's no doubt in that. There is absolutely no fucking doubt in that. And then the countless amount of deluge and, and floods, you know, there's landmass covered by water, no doubt. But this time periods, right? Because if it's a golden age, if it's a golden era, um, then it's, you know, completely covered uh with etheric energy from all these planets that's a golden age the silver age when they start to destruct would be more ice 
we'd have a lot more ice. You'd have more water. You'd have the moon. You'd probably only be able to see the moon. Maybe that's when the moon was fucking introduced. And all you could see was the moon. And then maybe the Bronze Age is, you know, the return of the actual sun and then an alchemical sense or something. I don't know. It's interesting. What do you yeah. think? Yeah, man. Uh, I, I think I think that probably does fit in. Uh, I mean, if you go back and look at the ages and what they were, the you know, there was the bull god age, which is the age of Taurus, the bull god, ball, the bull. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, balls yes yeah and and so i i believe bells, that like aries aries is connected to this Aryan civilization that came out during this time period and uh I, I i think a lot of it all has the symbolism to do with astronomy and shit it it seems like over and over again it always has to do with astronomy and mm-hmm. these stories are always pulled from the fucking sky pulled out of thin air <laughs> which i actually will i actually kind of wrote something about that and for the next one with von galtz talking kind of yeah about that um good so let's get it let's get we'll, into it we'll get into that but i wanted to finish this episode off uh by saying also uh go check out the patreon the patreon is three dollars a month uh we're we're posting bonus episodes on there that you're not going to find on the regular feed uh so it's worth the money uh help support us help support the podcast if you love us go check it out please support us uh we're not asking for any donations or anything like that for the regular shit just for the patreon which is all bonus uh we're we're looking into doing all kinds of different things with that uh my sister and i who you heard on last month on the divine feminine month uh we decided to start a a show together uh about our family tree uh, because we have a lot of interesting characters in our family tree and we thought it would be fun to talk about each one of them in uh, a little bit greater detail and because they all connect to this whole story of humankind and uh, I thought it'd just be interesting so that's going to be a new Patreon show coming up Ooh. too yeah and also I just recently heard that I sent you the audio for it because I've been looking into king arthur uh because i want to do something on that soon coming up uh probably going to be on the patreon also so make sure you're checking that out uh but interestingly in in the podcast i was listening to they said that arthur was possibly in frankfurt kentucky frank fort the frank fort which is the the fort of the frankie franks which is uh, Frankia, I believe, was France. French. Yeah. French, yes, yes. And so they believe that he might have been in battle uh, and died in Frankfurt, Kentucky. And they even said that he got shot with an arrow in the foot. And it reminded me of, like, Troy, right? The fall of Troy mm-hmm. and Achilles getting shot in the ankle. And I was like, oh, Ophucus. I wonder if this has like the same. Oh, see, oh, boom, Ophucus. Yeah, man. And Jesus, too, because he gets yeah. tied to Jesus. And yeah, Ophucus so the, and Jesus. Wow. Yeah, they're comparing all of, all of the King Arthur stories to to Jesus also and how uh, Mary, Ma- uh, not Mary Magdalene, but Gu- Guinevere and Merovingians and all this other stuff is fucking fascinating. Uh, so 
the reason why I brought that up is because it brought up the idea of people being in America in 500 AD. You know, uh, we, we talk a lot about this America possibly being inhabited. Who are these people that were here? And uh, so that's a pretty interesting story that I I've never heard before. Uh, so I'll leave you guys with that. Other than that, this is an episode with Marco Figado. It's a banger. So enjoy and wake. Wake up. up. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning into today's show. We are rising from the ashes. And we, as the fire tribe, will rise. Awaken our eyes. Beyond what is seemingly laid upon us, we can extend our consciousness to the further ends of our cosmic understanding. If you enjoy our show and you like the content that we create, make sure to like and subscribe. Share with your friends. Hello, everybody. Yes, please, please, please do. Also follow us on Instagram at RFTA Podcast. If you have any questions or concerns, you can email us at risingftashes at yahoo.com. Welcome to Rising from the Ashes podcast. It is me, Homie Romy, uh, here yet again with another blessed episode with a fantastic guest. Dan is going to be running a little bit behind, but he will jump in. And yeah, so I think you guys had a great time wrapping up the Divine Feminine Month. I think we got deep into the Lost Goddess concept. And we have a very special treat because the the month of March is all ancient civilizations. And we are really stoked to have with us tonight Marco Vigato, um, an author, an explorer, um, a, a, a great man, uh, an Italian man, actually, that lives in Mexico, which is really cool. Uh, the author of Empires of Atlantis. Hello, Marco. How are you? Hello. It's great to be here on the show tonight. Uh, thank you for having me. Of course. It's it's quite a pleasure. Well, I mean, for our people that don't know your specific story, you kind of have a cool story, a vagabond story. It sounds like you've always had this this really big 
itch and urge to go out and figure out stuff for yourself. Do you want to tell us your journey of you could start at whatever age you want to how you got to where you are today? Yeah, so I've been uh, really researching uh, the question of the origins of uh, civilization for at least uh, the past 15 years. And that, uh, the passion I have for ancient history or for, for archaeology is something uh, I carry from a very early age, uh, like traveling with uh, my father, who also happens to be an archaeologist uh, throughout many archaeological sites around Europe, uh, Middle East, uh, um, North Africa, and uh, later on in South America, Asia. So I visited uh, probably hundreds of archaeological sites on uh, five continents. Uh, more recently, uh, since I moved to Mexico uh, six years ago, I started focusing much more on Mesoamerican archaeology. So trying to understand more about the origin of Mesoamerican culture, I set up a foundation here in Mexico that actively sponsors uh, and uh, conducts archaeological excavations and research uh, at sites uh, throughout Mesoamerica with the goal of uh, uncovering more pieces of the puzzle of human origins and the and the origins of civilization. And that's that's really the question that animates me and that would also prompted me to writing uh, these, uh, this book, The Empires of Atlantis, just came out. What was the first uh, time that you traveled um, to a place that that maybe you had like a spiritual experience or something that really opened up your and, and cracked your creative noggin. Well, I think it definitely was Egypt. Uh, so the, the first time up, I was probably not even. 10 years old uh, when I went to, to the Great Pyramid and just like uh, the sense of awe and like wonder and seeing like the, just how big uh, that was, how complex, how sophisticated. Uh, um, there was a, something uh, that completely uh, blew my mind and uh, it's I, I'm still mind blown whenever I see uh, the the incredible realizations of ancient genius or ancient civilizations. I think uh, that really instilled me a desire to learn more, to understand more about um, who are these people, when did they leave, uh, what their culture looked like. Oh, wow. Uh, hello, Dan. Hello, how are you? This is Marco. <laughs> hey, Dan, Who's nice to meet you. How's it going? Thanks, uh, thanks for being here. I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's a pleasure being here on the show. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm late. Uh, I have to work sometimes. So, ah, it's a long day. Yes, yes. But, he, uh, he was just telling us uh, his first trip ever outside of Italy when he first started going was. Well, it wasn't really my first trip outside oh. of Italy, but mm. it was uh, my, uh, like, the, the first time I really came in contact with this sense of, like, mystery and the unexplained something uh, that yeah, I could not explain and I felt like just didn't fit uh, in the in the picture and the view of history that was taught at school and uh, from from like various various forms of conditioning what is what so growing up in Italy there what is their kind of uh, you know you're so close to Greece and you're so close to the Mediterranean which is also in turn close to Egypt in that area what what was kind of the story uh, I mean, I, it's kind of hard. You can't really wrap it up in, 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 in one sentence, but mm -hmm. what was their kind of, uh, teaching method or how did they go about telling you guys about ancient history and 
and public school or whatever school that you yeah. went to? I think it's a, it's a, it's a very limited uh, picture of history. I don't think it's only a problem with uh, the Italian education system or with, like, let's say, like the European or Western education system. The reality is that they tend to flatten the whole course of human history probably to the last 2,000 years. So, so at least uh, in, the, in the Italian system, history began with Rome. There was almost nothing before that. And so um, you, you study really in depth uh, everything about, like, the ancient Greece and Rome and the Middle Ages uh, down towards modern history. But before that, you only have a, a very vague idea. Yes, of course, like you can place in time uh, ancient Egypt, uh, Sumerians, Babylon. Uh, but it, it's it's just like a very uh, superficial mention of all these uh, ancient cultures. When we're talking about prehistory, that's really the, the, the realm of cavemen and like brutish hunter-gatherers. So uh, there is not even a hint uh, that uh, uh, lost civilization and advanced civilization may have existed uh, in uh, remote prehistory and was wiped out in, uh, in a cataclysm. This is uh, something I learned uh, later on as I started to study some of the literature on the subject on ancient civilizations and visiting also some of these sites. So, uh, that's why I said that uh, I felt from very early on a disconnect between this view of the past that was taught in school and what it see at many of these archaeological sites just these incredible achievements just didn't fit the party yeah yeah that's the same here uh you know i think that's the same probably worldwide at this you know at least within this century uh unfortunately but we're we're we're, we're making a change you know we're breaking the ice and we we got more people um on the tip uh of understanding our our true human potential and our optimization and and it starts with with going back and and looking at things like atlantis i mean it's not an easy thing to do obviously there's a lot of digging up uh that you have to do because it's incredibly deep research um but uh dan and i are both really into the um the donnelly book that i showed you beforehand uh atlantis yes. the antediluvian world and in there he, ignatius does a great job of of kind of correlating a lot of these response uh <clears throat> that the correlation between the americas and the american people that were basically got their culture from uh travelers mm -hmm. of east which is atlantis is that mm -hmm. is, is that what you think too yeah, absolutely. No, I think that uh, Donnelly did an incredible uh, job of like, connecting many of the dots uh, around the Atlantis story. Uh, particularly, uh, I think the subtitle of the book, The Antediluvian War, I think it's, it's really key. I think it was the first one to really understand that when we talk about Atlantis, we're really talking about uh, an antediluvian civilization. It was the first one to situate Atlantis in time at the end of the last ice age. Now, remember, it was right writing uh, in uh, the late 1800s. So it was a time when knowledge uh, about ice ages, about uh, the evolution, geology, archaeology was still very limited. So it's even more remarkable you could make 
the connections uh, and uh, um, like uh, have these uh, this type of intuitions. Which, uh, by the way, even though and we're talking about that, I think some of the material, of course, in Donnelly's book is probably outdated uh, by today's standards. But the, the the fundamental ideas, I think, they have withstood uh, remarkably well the test of time. They really formed the basis for much of uh, modern Atlantology, being the study of Atlantis and our lost civilizations. So, and many of the intuition that Donnelly had about the similarities uh, between ancient cultures, uh, this approach that looked not only at uh, the archaeological evidence, but also at the myths, uh, the traditions uh, uh, from very different peoples, so many different peoples around the world, and connecting all of them with the idea of a lost civilization of great Catholicism at the end of the last ice age, I think it's still very much valid today. We're just of course, like now, uh, bringing and gathering more evidence uh, in support of these uh, this theory. But I think the fundamental theory uh, still stands today. Yeah, I think Donnelly is great. Uh, he's a little bit, uh, yeah, in his old times, it's a little more racial contextually and everything, and you can you can see that in there. Yeah, you have but to that, understand that's like but, the time and the uh, the context in which he was writing, right? Yeah, but. In his knowledge, though, he's it boggles my mind that everybody just goes to Plato and not, nobody ever says anything about Ignatius Donnelly. Yet he yeah. has this whole book and he's putting all these different pieces together about language and about racial ethnicities in different lands and different areas and different uh, uh, buildings and all these different things. And, and, and people just think he's... Uh, some people believe that he's just baloney, I guess. Yeah, he was ridiculed uh, a lot. I, I yeah, was reading on his history. Yeah, because he, yeah, he, he had this such, bra like, he wanted to do so many things. He was like a really big idea mm -hmm. guy. And so people, I think, maybe were intimidated by it. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of people even now still believe that Atlantis is just a fairy tale and, and mm -hmm. poo-poo it. Uh, what what do you say to those people? Like, what proof, what evidence is there to support the fact that there had to have been an advanced civilization before known civilization? Well, I think we were truly at the edge uh, of a paradigm shift uh, in uh, archaeology in our understanding of human history. Just think uh, of. Uh, um, what has happened uh, uh, over the last uh, two decades, uh, really, since the discovery of uh, Gobekli Tepe, or at least uh, since it was uh, popularized, it changed completely our understanding of the past. And so we can only wonder at how many more sites uh, like Gobekli Tepe exist out there that have the same potential to change, or even more, of changing our view of history. Now, uh, I think it's not only a few isolated voices uh, as it could have been in the time of Ignatius Donnelly. I think now it's uh, some very consistent uh, evidence uh, that is being brought forth uh, from across a broad range of scientific disciplines. It's from the field of archaeology. Think about the redating of the Sphinx uh, and of the monuments on the Giza Plateau. Uh, it's the discovery of Gobekli Tepe. But it's also in uh, the fields of geology, for instance, the understanding of Earth's uh, uh, geological history, the younger Dryer impact hypothesis as gaining um, more and more traction even in academic fields, this idea that a massive cometary impact uh, um, was responsible for the end of the last ice age. So when you start actually connecting the dots, I think um, a very
very clear picture emerges uh, of uh, a civilization, uh, clearly an advanced civilization. We can discuss about how advanced that civilization was. Uh, that was wiped out uh, at the end of the last ice age by a uh, cataclysm, uh, most likely by a cometary impact, so that human civilization to start over again uh, throughout the following millennia. I think this is a picture that is taking uh, shape uh, more and more and in a very consistent way uh, through through evidence uh, collecting across a broad range of scientific disciplines. So I think that the change, to answer your question, this change of paradigm, as any change of paradigm really, will take time, but I think it's almost inevitable. And uh, I, I cannot tell you if it's going to take uh, 10 years, uh, 50 years, a century maybe, but I'm sure it's going to happen at some point. Yeah, I heard, uh, I heard somebody say that there's no uh, evidence of Atlantis, like no concrete evidence. But I feel like the Antikytherian mechanism is somewhat some evidence of some advanced society. I think, you know, Globleki Tepe, obviously. Uh, and Yonaguni, too, mm -hmm. uh, that's off Japan. Is, obviously, there has been something in... Uh, mm -hmm. You know, that's in the Pacific, though, even. So, I mean, obviously that's not in the Atlantic. But it, it does scream that there had to have been an advanced civilization yeah. in antiquity. Uh, you talked about the Younger Dryas mm -hmm. uh, time and, and the, uh, or the, the meteors that hit the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is Randall Carlson the only one that does work on that? Or are there other scientists no, there, and there, other there people that are also scientists. doing uh, Actually, I think uh, Randall Carlson has done a really great job at like popularizing these yeah. uh, these idea of the cataclysm but there are top-notch scientists behind that like published in academic journals on science and nature mm -hmm. there is a raging debate in the academic community yeah. around the younger grass hypothesis with dozens if not hundreds at this point of papers uh, that are confirming the evidence of uh, a cosmic impact around the younger grass boundary over and over again from so many different sites uh, around yeah. the world so i think that the, the the body of evidence at this point is uh, enormous and it keeps building up. Uh, so, uh, and again, it's, it's top-notch scientists. It's not like your typical fringe researcher uh, working out of a, of a basement. Uh, these are like top scientists from top universities uh, working with uh, uh, the most advanced uh, scientific methods of today. Yeah, because it seems like a, little, a lot of people will kind of poo-poo Randall Carlson also. Uh, for for being this or free whatever people want to poo poo things about, but uh, <laughs> I think that some people think that he's the only one doing this research and that mm -hmm. he's the only one that knows about it. So he's putting this out there like it's uh, his yep. you know th thing and like nobody else is actually doing any research on it. But there is other people doing research on it. He's not the only one. Absolutely. And there is a lot more evidence to support what he's saying than just him supporting what he's saying. That's mm -hmm kind of what i'm trying absolutely yeah i want to uh talk to you about the technology that you were you're referencing because you know the uh the resonance architecture that they were able to build and like the crystalline uh the uh, advanced technology that they were able to have access to that you know it was very clear of the metallurgy and the the alchemy that was going on um, <clears throat> what evidence have you found that kind of like proves that there was definitely some crystalline energy going on there? 
Well, I think one common mistake uh, that we make um, in, in the search for ancient uh, advanced civilizations is that we are trying to find ourselves in the past. So we're looking for something that looks like uh, our modern society in the past. And so uh, the, the same type of technology as today, we expect to find it again in the past. So we do not uh, really conceive the possibility that an equally advanced, if not even more advanced civilization than ours could have existed employing a completely different type of science and technology from what we're used to uh, today. And so uh, many of these uh, like claims that you find in the, in the esoteric literature about uh, uh, some of these ancient civilizations, Atlanteans being able to harness uh, like earth energies, uh, telluric currents, um, the power of like the crystalline matrix of our planet, uh, which uh, again, admittedly, they may sound far-fetched, at least uh, based on the on the canons of modern science, uh, but still, they they may uh, reveal important things, important aspects of the science of the technology of this civilization. Now, um, when and I think uh, uh, Dan was saying uh, was, was mentioned before, where is the evidence? So I was asking this question: Where is the evidence uh, for for Atlantis? Now, uh, we we need also to to to, to understand to think about what kind of evidence uh, are we looking for. Uh, and uh, I think the evidence is really all around us. Uh, there are many examples uh, of that. Uh, first of all, if you just look uh, at uh, all these incredible monuments uh, from uh, antiquity, I'm not only talking about uh, the most obvious ones like the pyramids uh, of Egypt, uh, the site of Tiwanaku in, uh, in Bolivia. There are probably hundreds, maybe thousands of these monuments uh, throughout the world uh, that uh, even though they may belong to different time periods, different civilizations, they all share something of the same worldview, the idea of harnessing certain, uh, uh, you can call them Earth energies, uh, a certain system of celestial and terrestrial alignments that they all share. So that all hints uh, at the fact that at some point a global culture, global civilization existed, and for that civilization, all these uh, grid uh, almost of ancient sites was part of something. It was part of almost a, almost a machine, uh, if you want, uh, something that definitely serves some very important purpose for their civilization. And if you also look at uh, some of these sites, I think there are incredible examples in Egypt, in South America, of the use of very advanced technologies that we cannot uh, truly explain today. The evidence of uh, stone vitrification that we find in Peru at the uh, Temperature is probably of thousands of degrees Celsius in order to literally melt and vitrify uh, the stone. Uh, you have evidence uh, at many sites in Egypt of the use of uh, very advanced machines. Of course, uh, these machines have not survived, right? So um, we may find. Uh, um, uh, maybe some like parts, some elements, but uh, reality is that after after tens of thousands uh, of years, uh, very little would have survived with the actual machines. But what we have is the evidence that is quite literally written in stone uh, that these machines were used. When you find boreholes uh, drilled through granite mm -hmm. or through basalt at speeds, uh, you can tell the speed by looking at the... Uh, 
Exactly, by looking at the rings uh, that these tools uh, left. And you can see that these tools were cutting through granite, through basalt, much faster than any modern tools uh, would do. Uh, you find evidence at the site uh, uh, called Aburawash that they also visited uh, a few kilometers north of Giza that circular saws were employed with a diameter over seven meters, over 20 feet. Um, and the evidence is unmistakable because you find the evidence literally on the stones. So there can be no doubt that advanced machines existed in antiquity and they were employed, even though we may never find the actual machines themselves. But the evidence is there on the stones to show that these technologies existed. They're very similar in the case of vitrification that they mentioned in, uh, in Peru. And I think it's, a, it's part of our responsibility to bring this evidence to light and really challenge the mainstream parting, but that we still try to convince us that all of this was just realized by primitive people that were hammering one stone against each other, or at best uh, using copper tools. There is no way these people were sophisticated, they possess advanced technology, they possess advanced machines, and the evidence uh, is uh, right there, it's right in front of us. Yeah. And in, in your kind of overview, uh, what do you think about Atlantis after doing the research and looking into it and writing the book like what's in your head when you think about Atlantis what, what is it that you see do you see like a worldwide civilization do you see mm -hmm. like one big island that they're at or do you see them all over the place or yeah. did they go around teaching people or uh, were they you know getting too big for their britches how did how do you uh What's your picture? Oops. Well, this uh, is truly the civilization of the last golden age. If you embrace this view of cyclical time, this is common to so many uh, traditions, so many religions around the world. Atlantis really belongs in the in the, in the previous uh, world age. Um, it was the, the the civilization truly of the last golden age. And so, if we if we try to build a picture of Atlantean civilization, we also have to keep in mind the fact that this civilization spanned. The, thousands, uh, even tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. So they will be very mm. reductive to just limit it to one period of time. How, so how far back could it have possibly gone? What, what they suggest uh, in the book is that it could go back uh, over 400,000 years in the Ooh. past. Right. Uh, and, and this is a just not a pure speculation. This is based uh, on uh, uh, many ancient chronologies uh, that have survived that talk about these uh, extremely long, admittedly, cycles of time. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting that throughout these uh, uh, very long period of time, Atlantean civilization remained unchanged. It clearly went through a process of evolution mm -hmm. and development. And so that's why uh, in, the, in the book, I talk about multiple empires of Atlantis, multiple Atlantean civilizations, so, mm -hmm. um, each one with their own uh, distinctive uh, characteristics uh, so that uh, we cannot really compare or talk about the civilization of the late Atlantean period as if it were the same as the early Atlantean civilization. But what I suggest is that 
uh, all these civilizations they originated uh, from a specific place uh, which I believe uh, was uh, truly as Plato said uh, uh, now sunken mid-Atlantic landmass and from there they spread throughout the world so yes it was at some point a global civilization but it originated from uh, a specific place from which it spread throughout the world um, it was never also it was never a linear process right this is also something that I suggest there were multiple cataclysm the younger Dryas cataclysm was probably just the latest in order of time there were certainly other cataclysm before that so that uh, the civilizations uh, really uh, went uh, in cycles um, there were times uh, there were dark ages uh, they were followed by uh, periods of great prosperity great scientific and technological advancement followed again by other dark ages um, so it was almost like a cyclical repetition away we can only guess at how many of these cycles we have already gone through in which like civilization rose to very great heights and then was destroyed and we had to start over again like children as Plato says mm-hmm Dude, uh, there are some people that we've had on the show uh, that have brought up some pretty tantalizing and fun uh, thought pieces that the Fertile Crescent um, or, uh, you know, some uh, there's some Egyptian hieroglyphs that have been found uh, in the. Oh, what's a big crater in America? <laughs> I'm forgetting the name. Grand Canyon? Yeah, some high Egyptian hieroglyphs found in the oh. Grand Canyon. And some people speculate that um, a lot of the stories uh, were actually here in America and or around where the Atlantis peri- uh, land would be. What, what's your opinion on that? Well, I think uh, that... Uh, since Atlantean civilization at some point uh, clearly spread uh, throughout the world. And so we can find evidence of Atlantean colonists uh, in many different parts of the world, from Egypt uh, to South America, Central America, even uh, even North America. Um, so I, I do believe uh, it's, it's actually quite possible they will uncover some evidence of this Atlantean colonization in other areas, in other parts of the world. Uh, because be, you have to you have to remind yourself of the fact that this was a again a global uh, civilization at some point. Now, uh, over over the past uh, ten thousand years or more, so much has been lost uh, because of the cataclysm uh, that happened uh, in the meanwhile the younger Dryas cataclysm, being. Uh, uh, certainly the most destructive but certainly also not the only one there were others both before and after that uh, uh, also if we think about uh, where to look uh, for the evidence of this civilization even forgetting for a moment this idea of recurring cataclysm uh, the ice ages uh, what we know and this is uh, something uh, that uh, is uh, is confirmed by science uh, is that between the end of the last ice age and now global sea levels rose by over 120 meters this is over 360 feet uh, worldwide so you can only imagine how many great cities how many civilizations ended up under the waves uh, were submerged uh, at that time and uh, it's, it's quite obvious if you think about that if you think about Atlantis as a global seafaring culture that many of its major centers of civilization will be located along the coast so that's probably where we have uh, the greatest uh, uh, likelihood of finding evidence of these uh, civilizations. 
And yeah, maybe even it, like if you go inland on some uh, rivers that may have been some like some we have some ancient rivers, you know, and I think there's probably some cool uh, archaeological mm-hmm. evidence to be found around there. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, about the circles, right? There's all, there's the concentric circles, uh, it's the circle symbology, um, this Atlantean culture, uh, you know, we're in touch with, uh, with the creation of, and the, and, and the origin of symbology itself and alchemy and the Zodiac and understanding the stars and, and coming up with, with language and time and, um, uh, so the, the circles, what, 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 what yeah. is with Atlanteans and the circles? Well, like, according to Plato, Atlantis, uh, at least the capital city of Atlantis, which is called Basileia, the royal city, was built in three concentric circles, uh, uh, alternating land and sea. It must have been like a truly wonderful engineering and architectural creation, at least if you believe um, Plato's story. And this uh, description, by the way, is also corroborated uh, from a number of accounts, also from other cultures. For instance, in the, in the Hindu Vedas and in the Puranas, which are some of the oldest surviving texts, uh, religious texts of mankind, we find a very similar description of a city uh, called the Tripura, the Triple City, which is also built of these concentric rings. So, so, again, like you find very similar description, even the Edfu building texts in Egypt that describe these foundations of the gods, these primeval places, uh, as circular in shape. And I think uh, these, uh, this circular shape uh, may have uh, main connotations. The first one is a solar connotation uh, because of course like the circle which comes to represent the sun. Even for the ancient Egyptians, uh, the, the the sun god uh, Ra was represented with the circle. Uh, it reminds us of the idea of uh, the solstices and the equinoxes uh, with like the two main axes of the circle. Now, it's, it's quite obvious actually if you think of some of the earliest megalithic monuments of Stonehenge, for instance, all built in the shape of a circle because it's the most natural shape for like devising the cardinal directions, the move, serving the movements of the of the sun. So definitely there is a solar association there, but I think there is also a more subtle astronomical uh, correlation there. It has to do with uh, cyclical time and particularly with the precession of the equinoxes. Again, the zodiac was uh, represented as a wheel, as a circle. And so you have this idea of the sun again, like traveling through the different houses of the zodiac through different signs, which are again, like placed uh, in, a, in a circle. Now, if you, if you believe uh, in uh, some of the accounts that have been uh, preserved and passed down to us in the esoteric tradition, the uh, primeval age uh, of the god, like at the time of the uh, original primeval golden age, uh, the earth uh, originally spun uh, upright, like perfectly perpendicular. So right now we know that uh, the earth's axis is tilted at 23 degrees, which is what causes uh, our seasons, uh, like um, uh, the fact that the length of the day is not constant throughout the year. But if you imagine a sort of a perfect golden age in which the earth spun perfectly upright on its axis, then you would have found some very remarkable conditions at the poles. And this is what is suggesting the esoteric tradition, the primal center of civilization, the first Atlantis, if you want, that was located at the pole. At the, at the North Pole, there was mm. a, a northern polar seat. 
of human civilization. Mm. What an observer at the pole would have observed would have been the sun never setting, but always circling around. So if you were to build a city right there, and of course, like we can imagine that they've quite literally seen the sun circling around the city uh, every, well, it was, would have been an, an eternal day, truly, like the sun would never set on the, on the city. So that might be where the circular design, or I like to think that might be where the circular design originally came from, for Atlantis. Is this mythology f- uh, from something else, or is this just uh, kind of what you've gathered from putting the clues together. Well, there is this idea, and there are a number of hints uh, in, uh, in texts, uh, like ancient texts, uh, mythical traditions uh, throughout the world, that uh, during the last golden age, uh, it was basically an eternal spring. There were no seasons. Now, if we just look beyond mm-hmm. this metaphor and think of what uh, that uh, could have meant uh, in terms of the conditions that must have existed on Earth at the time, then the only possibility is the Earth's axis was, uh, was perfect upright there are also uh, there is also evidence uh, like now uh, moving on more towards uh, like the, the scientific evidence of that that multiple pole shifts happened uh, throughout the course of earth's history so that uh, uh, first of all like the earth's axis was not always inclined uh, 23 degrees as it is now and uh, that even the position of our current poles was not the same. They shifted uh, throughout time for a variety of reasons. So uh, there again, like scientists differentiate uh, between uh, what is called like uh, polar wandering, uh, meaning like the the, uh, the Earth's crust uh, shifting position, so that uh, also the position of the poles uh, relative uh, to, um, to, the, to the orbital plane uh, shifts uh, as well. Uh, but there is also the possibility that the Earth axis itself may have shifted uh, uh, not one but maybe multiple times over over the course of history from an original perfectly upright perpendicular position mm-hmm. oh back to the yeah. circles really quick just before we jump off too far um, because it ties into what you're talking about at the the, which is fascinating the first Atlantean culture being up n- up north at the northern pole mm-hmm. Um and so one of the symbols and the signs of Atlantis, you know, their flag, if you will, um, their trademark sign was the circle with a cross in it. And some people say right. that that's the four rivers running out um, in the four directions. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's majorly symbolic. It has massive roots. But what what's your take on that cross symbolism there? Well, again, I think it connects to this idea of the solstices and the equinoxes, really the, the, the framework of that. So again, like going back to, the, to, to this uh, idea of like the circle as a, like a primitive form of a solar observatory, then it would be almost obvious like to use that to mark uh, the cardinal direction. So, um, but again, this is a concept you find in many world religions, even in Christianity, this idea of uh, the cross, uh, if you think about that as, a, as an astronomical uh, metaphor with, um, again, I'm not suggesting that Christianity is a, is a solar religion, uh, but there are many it elements is. of the sun cult uh, behind mm. that, this idea of uh, Christ, of Jesus as the sun god. Uh, and uh, mm. the, in, in, in ancient and classical mythology, the sun god was supposed to circle the wheel of the zodiac on its chariot. And interestingly, the zodiac yeah. had uh, 12 uh, different houses, 12 different 
different signs, almost as the number of disciples of Jesus and the cross really be this like great uh, division of the zodiac into four quadrants, uh, uh, which again uh, reflects uh, the, the very ancient idea of four mm. ages uh, of the world. Like you have a golden age, a silver age, bronze age, and the iron age. So as the, as the sun uh, mm. moves uh, throughout the zodiac, this is what causes uh, the rise and fall of the ages. It causes us to be at one time in a golden age and a silver age, and so on, and just for the fact that the sun moves across this great wheel of the zodiac. And it creates four angles. Mm-hmm. Four yep. angels. Um, yeah, that's that's good. Um, yeah, I was thinking too. Uh, have you have you seen that uh, seven thousand or eight thousand year old ostrich egg that depicts mm-hmm. Atlantis at the North Pole? Yeah, what do you think of the authenticity of that ostrich egg? Well, I think it's always a matter of interpretation. There are many people who try to read, uh, uh, assuming we're talking about the same ostrich egg, uh, trying to read into that. Like, there are some triangles there. People believe yeah. are representation of the like pyramids, uh, for instance. Yeah. But I think it's I think it's plausible. But uh, with uh, as usual with these things, it's always a matter of interpretation. Some people will just see in these triangles the, the pyramids, uh, because there are four. Uh, other other people will just see a representation of mountains. So I don't think we'll ever reach a conclusive evidence uh, just based on interpretation. Okay. Another thing I was going to bring up was uh, pole land. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Land around the pole, yeah? Well, it's this idea that uh, like primeval humanity lived in a, in a polar location. It's a really a foundational idea of theosophy of many esoteric schools. So, um, that suggests basically this sequence of various uh, human races. And the first one was truly the polar race that exists in this northern land, which is called Hyperborea. Now, there is mm-hmm. a question whether we can also identify this uh, primeval polar land, Hyperborea, with, uh, with a Atlantis, or whether they represented like two separate uh, separate lands, but I think we're still talking about uh, very remote uh, times in the course of human history. So, if you want, uh, you can you can definitely imagine like a primeval sita of uh, humanity, a primeval civilization, as being located uh, either physically or symbolically at uh, the pole, and then that center uh, shifting uh, to a more western location on uh, the the continent or in this landmass of Atlantis in the Mid-Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's kind of a troublesome talk it, topic uh, to talk about uh, race and stuff like that, but what you see is a lot of these cultures around the world always talk about uh, tall, blue-eyed people or blonde hair or red hair people coming to help them or give them some type mm-hmm. of technology or the plow or or teaching them to farm or teaching them yep. celestial bodies and names of that is do you think there's some connection with uh, possibly uh, Caucasian people in the north and Atlantis? Well, I think to, to, to begin with, uh, these are this whole concept of uh, uh, like race and different ethnicities, even if we look at the genetic evidence, it's really something uh, that uh, arose uh, probably within the last uh, 10,000 years or so. So we have uh, actually very mm. little knowledge of what that uh, looked like uh, back in, uh, in the ancient times. Uh, also whenever uh, in the, in the very language important. Of, that's very important to just just to that that 
<laughs> sorry to interrupt, but that's just yeah. an incredibly important thing for people just to remember that, you know, everything changes and, and we don't even know what the earth used to look like back in the day, let alone mm -hmm. what the concept of what right. humans may have even looked like. Right. Right, absolutely. And we also have to keep in mind the fact that uh, whenever in the language of theosophy, the esoteric tradition, they, uh, they talk that like Blavatsky, for instance, talk about the human races, uh, she didn't really uh, talk about uh, ethnicity in uh, in the modern sense of the term. She was really talking about almost human species. Uh, so that had nothing, nothing really yes. to do with our modern concept of, of race. Actually, uh, when, uh, in, uh, when we hear about, when we read about uh, Atlantis, these ancient civilizations uh, in, uh, in the esoteric tradition, um, the, the, the picture emerges, uh, uh, like a picture emerges of these uh, civilizations, essentially multi-ethnic, multicultural. So I don't think we can even speak of just a single Atlantean type, uh, for instance, uh, very much mm -hmm. as, as today, like if we were to describe uh, uh, our, our, our global civilization, really, based on one ethnicity, of course, like uh, People come in every uh, like uh, skin color and um, eye color, hair color as well. So uh, I, I, I think like people are putting probably like too much weight on these like modern characterization that might have been entirely relevant in ancient times. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, Ignatius Donnelly talks about how their colors were red, white, and black. Mm -hmm. And uh, they also talk about how the, the pyramids at Giza mm -hmm. uh, were possibly coated with red, white, and mm -hmm. black stone, each one a different color. Yep. And I was, uh, and he can uh, kind of correlated that with the ethnic ethnic background mm -hmm. of of the people that lived there. And what he was saying was that they're multi. Mm -hmm cultural multiracial uh right. civilizations and so i was wondering do you think uh you you said that you believe that they're multiracial but right. do you think that that those colors have to do with the, the racial aspect or completely something else no no in the, in the case of the pyramid i don't think it has really anything to do with that i think it was clearly based on symbolic considerations it was really mostly the increase in the use of granite uh, in, the, in the casing of some of the pyramids so you go from the great pyramid up that uh, basically didn't have any granite in the case it just had this golden capstone then the kefron pyramid had probably the first two or three courses were made of granite and then the menkore pyramid was up to one third of its height it was entirely casing mm -hmm. granite. So there's a sense of progression there that must have had certainly some symbolic meaning. Uh, there have been a number of interpretations to why the choice of, uh, of materials would that suggest almost in a mathematical, in a geometric progression uh, across the pyramid. I don't really think it had anything to do with uh, any any concept of race or the ethnicity of the, of the pyramid builders, really. Maybe it was an al alchemical uh, understanding because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that's something else that's coming up to the surface a lot in the truth-seeking realm. You know, there's a lot of people looking for the truth, the real history, the human origins, where we really came from, because everybody knows they've been fed a bunch of bullshit through, you know, public schooling. And, you know, I don't want to go and point fingers, you know, but and, and because we can do that in our free time. Um but there's there's similarities in all of the theologies across all of the lands, right? There's always similarities. And there's always this one mystical character 
that that is is kind of the one that always just goes really far back and that's the good old hermes trismegistus mercury Mm -hmm. or thoth the atlantean as they Mm -hmm. call him right um what's your take on the atlantic kings or the atlantean gods and this character of hermes well, throughout the world, uh, you find uh, traditions of the arrival of uh, very advanced uh, uh, beings, very advanced human beings that brought uh, civilization to peoples uh, throughout the world. And so uh, very much in the same way as in Egypt, uh, you have the figure of thought as the inventor of writing uh, of the hieroglyphs or all kinds of sciences and kind. Uh, also in, uh, in Mesoamerica in South South America, you have very similar traditions uh, of Quetzalcoatl, of Kukulcan, of Viracocha in, in South America. There were also great uh, um, culture bearers, uh, uh, great culture heroes that became the founders of these civilizations. They taught uh, primitive humanity, the knowledge of agriculture, of monumental architecture, metallurgy, the art of writing, uh, astronomy, the calendar. You find that these traditions uh, pretty much all over the world, and they're remarkably similar in their description of uh, these uh, rather rather curious uh, cast of uh, characters and the type of knowledge that they brought. So I think that all of these uh, traditions that we find throughout the world are really um, talk about the scattering of uh, Atlantean culture, both before and after the cataclysm, when Atlantean missionaries and Atlantean survivors uh, colonized uh, uh, many different parts of the world bringing civilization to, to these lands. And that I suggest uh, uh, also in the book that this was largely driven by geological instability in uh, the mainland, in the heartland of Atlantis itself. So it was uh, the gradual sinking of uh, Atlantis uh, throughout many millennia that uh, prompted these uh, mass migrations of people that eventually reached different parts of the world and thus contributed to the spreading of Atlantean civilization and culture. That's fascinating. And, um, and very, I mean, it's, I, I am trying to track down this, this Hermes, you know, as far back as it goes and this understanding of alchemy and science and magic. And, you know, we were talking earlier about, and I don't mean magic in a woo woo sense. I mean, you know, uh, magic in an alchemical sense of like being able to contort a specific uh, a material through the um, an element through um, through cold, through heat, through magnetism, through ether, through through different levels of physics. Uh, that's magic, and and I think that's being you know heavily suppressed, and that goes into the deep mystery schools, and you know that it's being taught down in a very fractured level of um, you know deep deep teachings that's out there. It's there. I think the Atlantean uh, knowledge is there. I think it's held in very very safe regards, uh, and there's only ever going to be until we crack the case and crack the egg certain people that get to touch it and get to know about it and get to really see it and access it and so i wanted to ask you about your understanding of of earth's magnet system magnetisms uh and the ley lines because you've traveled all over the world and what is your experience with ley lines what's your experience with understanding these um, archaeological points on the ley lines and anything with that 
Yeah, I do believe that at the core of uh, um, Atlantean uh, civilization or Atlantean science was a, a form of uh, what we may call hermetic magic. Uh, um, of course, uh, what we what we really mean uh, by by that uh, is uh, an understanding of uh, the laws of uh, correlation and resonance, uh, mostly, uh, which is uh, something that you find uh, in very consistently across the world at so many ancient sites they were not only very precisely situated on certain hotspots or certain points uh, on the earth grid uh, so it's very significant latitudes or longitudes that uh, marked uh, some uh, relevant energy points uh, on on the earth but it was also built uh, to be a mirror of the sky which is again one of the fundamental uh, principles of hermetic science and hermetic magic and hence the importance it was attributed to the orientation of uh, this site you have many examples from Giza to Angkor of entire cities uh, they were designed to be a representation on earth of the sky in the case of Angkor it was a consultant of Draco at Giza, it was a consolation of Orion, but you have many other examples. They also mentioned in the book, for instance, in central Italy, you have a, a number of megalithic sites that were built to mimic uh, the constellation of Leo, uh, whereas even in down to medieval times in northern France, the location of many of the Notre Dame cathedrals. Uh, uh, matched uh, the position of the stars in the constellation of Virgo. So there was this idea that by creating an image of the sky on Earth, you could also transfer some of the energies, uh, some of these uh, celestial energies down on Earth. And so uh, what really happened at these sacred sites was the fusion between celestial energies and terrestrial energies. They were meant to bring down these celestial influences from the sky. They were achieved mm. through astronomical orientations and through quite literally mapping the sky on Earth. And because of the fact that these sites were also very precise located at significant spots uh, on uh, the Earth's uh, surface, uh, what you had uh, was really really a fusion, a holy marriage, uh, and this is actually the language used by many esoteric traditions, was the divine marriage uh, of uh, Earth and sky, of celestial and uh, terrestrial energy. So, uh, now, talking about uh, the the world grade of ancient sites, um, what you find is not only that these sites are aligned uh, over a uh, very long distance, I found many examples of that throughout the world, this idea uh, that uh, uh, sites... Uh, were aligned, uh, they formed like very long-range, long-distance alignments, but they, they were also very precisely, very carefully situated, certain multiples of latitude and longitude uh, from, from each other reflected a very deep understanding of uh, uh, geometry, of uh, just like the, the, the 
the nature really of, of our planet and the relationship between different places uh, on, on our planet, the relationship that it had with uh, the sky, with the Earth's magnetic field. And again, this is a uh, parts of this knowledge may have been preserved through a number of esoteric traditions, but uh, the reality is that the principles upon which this uh, very ancient science was based are completely lost uh, to the science of our day. Uh, and are completely um, unknown, truly, to, to our modern science. So that's why we just don't understand that. We just see superstition, we see strange coincidences, whereas, in fact, uh, there is evidence that this was all part of a very coherent uh, system that was clearly laid out by very intelligent people with uh, a clear purpose in mind. Yeah. Um, in the book, you talk about uh, some of the different ages of Atlantis. Uh, what what can you tell us about like the first and second age and of Atlantis? Like what what did that look like? What who was what was going on in in like uh, kind of the world and you know uh, the the people. Well, that, that's the time when, as I suggest in the book, the first anatomically modern humans appear. And what it suggests is that the true cradle of humanity was uh, not Africa, but Atlantis. So that the first anatomically modern humans mm -hmm. appeared on Atlantis. And it was through a process of uh, hybridization and um, crossbreeding with other hominin species, Homo erectus and Neanderthal, that uh, modern, truly modern humans, Homo sapiens sapiens, uh, came to be. So I do suggest that the Atlanteans, uh, uh, even before being a civilization in their own right, they were also uh, a separate human species that evolved uh, on uh, these uh, now sunken uh, mid-Atlantic landmass. And from there, isolation? Yes, yes, it was, uh, it was, it was isolation. For sure. Uh, uh, so that, that allowed uh, these human species to develop almost independently for hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of years on these uh, mid-Atlantic landmass uh, before it actually started uh, living that cradle and spreading throughout, uh, throughout the world. And we're just now uncovering the evidence of so many uh, missing links uh, or lost yeah. human ancestors, uh, like the Denisovans, uh, for instance, were almost entirely unknown um, just a few decades uh, ago. And much of these uh, we know thanks to genetic evidence as well do you how much credence do you give to the Denisovans though well I, I do believe uh, that uh, the Denisovans uh, were clearly uh, rather sophisticated uh, human ancestor uh, but I do not necessarily believe uh, these were these are almost like superhuman or divine beings necessarily uh, but the evidence has been uncovered uh, from uh, the Denisova cave that's where the, the, the place where the first evidence of Denisovans in Siberia was uh, was uncovered, it shows that these people were able to produce a really beautiful stone objects and ornaments. There is a bracelet that was found in Denisovan Key, mm. which is made uh, okay. of uh, chlorite, uh, which is a rather hard uh, stone. It has a perfectly drilled hole in it. Uh, so that, that suggests that these people were not 
primitive. So they, they had a, a pretty sophisticated uh, level of civilization. I'm not talking about a technologically advanced society necessarily, mm-hmm. but they clearly possessed uh, an artistic sense. Uh, uh, they clearly possessed uh, um, an, an ability to think uh, in, uh, in abstraction. So we, we need to also give credit to this very remote human ancestor. We're talking about a time over 50, 70,000 years ago when these uh, these people lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and the evidence also shows that uh, um, back then there were probably many different human species existing on Earth. Uh, at the time, there were the Zovans, there were Neanderthals, Homo erectus, Homo floresiensis, like many different human species. And uh, the picture that uh, is uh, is emerging uh, from all of these is that we're, we're truly the result of uh, uh, of, of, of multiple genetic. Uh, uh, streams uh, of the um, interbreeding of different hominin species uh, that existed uh, back then. So we're by no means uh, a pure species, if you want. They were, in fact, the the result of uh, hybridization between many different human species. Uh, um, Genetic evidence, for instance, shows that most modern humans living today, they carry between 3 and 5% of Neanderthal DNA. Uh, This percentage um, in some human populations can also be higher. Many people also carry Denisovan DNA. So I think it's a distinct possibility that we'll one day uncover uh, another missing human ancestor, what they call uh, Homo Atlanticus, or like Atlantean oh. men, as wow. another missing link in the chain of human evolution, whose genetic footprint may still survive in our own DNA. I was I was under the impression that all they have found was like a, a finger bone, and then they came up with like a, a whole species of human Denisovian. Is, well, is there more than just a finger bone that they found? I, f- I find it like one finger particle bone and then to the develop a whole species around that because they were advanced is kind of well, that's, uh, that's the like great... pushing it out a little bit. So I was wondering, do you have some more to help yeah. me understand how that could be possible from one well, that's Small. the great thing about the latest development in uh, in anthropology and genetic science. We don't even need uh, to have uh, fossil evidence anymore because the evidence is quite literally written in our DNA. So, mm-hmm. uh, when when actually these uh, bone fragment actually it started as you say with a uh, like a finger bone fragment, but then like more and more like fragments have been found and now there is a, a okay. possibility that the first Denisovan skull or fragments of it uh, mm. has been uncovered. So uh, once we we sequence the DNA of uh, these uh, even like very tiny fragments or fossil evidence, that's uh, where we can actually reconstruct uh, the fact that uh, uh, this was a different species uh, uh, of humans, uh, that there is enough genetic variation in uh, that DNA to suggest that uh, this was a a different, a separate uh, species. Um, And so as we we increase our, our understanding of um, not only the Nisovans, but also Neanderthals, the interaction between these different human species. Again, these uh, 
picture starts to emerge in which uh, all these uh, different human species coexisted uh, on mm-hmm. Earth. Uh, they, uh, they clearly mixed uh, with each other. There was a process of hybridization. And that the evidence of all of these is, again, quite literally written in our DNA. We can find our mm-hmm. own DNA, the genetic legacy of all these uh, different uh, uh, species that uh, um, ended up uh, ended up um, giving rise to Homo sapiens sapiens, who we are today. Yeah, why do you think it all got uh, like uh, homogenized into one species now that because we're Homo sapiens sapiens? So how how did we start as like? so many different ones and then over time progress into just one through mm-hmm. through interbreeding and uh hybridization yep well the answer and is <laughs> Exactly. Well, the answer is uh, uh, genetic bottlenecks. So, so uh, by, by that comes by this concept of genetic bottlenecks, so what they suggest there are events, uh, uh, cataclysmic events uh, throughout human history that significantly uh, reduced uh, the uh, genetic variability within the human genetic pool. So, uh, there is actually evidence that at some point the whole human population on this planet was probably down to just a few thousand individuals. Um, there was a, the so-called Toba catastrophe uh, around 70,000 uh, years ago. So it was through these genetic bottlenecks uh, that uh, um, much of that uh, genetic variability that must have existed in earlier times disappeared just because these people died out uh, without uh. The, the ability to reproduce uh, that genetic variability into their descendants. So these genetic bottlenecks uh, really created a much more homogeneous uh, human human population. So like cataclysms yep. it ended up causing kind of like the one species, yeah. Mass extinction events. And monotheism. <laughs> uh, do you think through the modern technology that we have now, we'd be able to take like that Denisovian gen- den- DNA and maybe uh, clone it? Yeah, clone it and be able to implement it into, you know, I mean, discovery. It, they, 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 they're making babies in test tubes like it's a thing. So I wonder if we're going to be testing around with that or what, what have you seen in, in science to anything well, to back that up, Marco? I think this raises all kinds of, uh, of ethical <laughs> questions. Uh, of course, uh, I think that technically we could. Uh, the question is, should we uh, do that? I, I don't. I don't honestly think it's a. It's a. It will be a, a good idea, even beyond the, uh, the the ethical question, whether it's ethical or morally correct. Uh, I think there is already so much we can learn uh, just through through DNA uh, itself uh, about these um, these like ancient. Hominin, uh, hominin species. Uh, uh, and also, uh, there is probably a reason if these uh, like human ancestors disappear, and so mm-hmm. like bringing back the past is sort of uh, like, uh, well, it's not really going to be a Jurassic Park, but an Ice Age Park. I don't really think it's going to yeah. be a, a, a good idea. What if they're doing it for for science, though? What if they're uh, you know doing one, then so they could bring it back and just 
study the human the bones of it to see what well, it I think is that like what, or... what would you study right so so much yeah. of what makes us human and defines our culture is, is really like uh, our cultural imprinting right so an individual okay. completely isolated from its own species uh, uh, there is no such thing as genetic memories like uh, these people even assuming we could bring them back uh, they would not recall anything of the lifestyle uh, of or the culture of these uh, of these people they would be like completely um mm. like completely out of place out of time uh, really so I, I don't think that we could actually learn much about them that we cannot already learn from like the study of, of DNA and uh, mm. their, their like remains uh, uh, today you know, there also been discussion about resuscitating mammals uh, uh, for instance and again I think Mammoth. it's technically it's technically possible um, to do that I'm actually much more inclined I would be much more in favor of resurrecting a mammoth uh, than a Denis Owen because they're cuddly yeah but, but but again I think uh, <laughs> Uh, it would probably like satisfy some some type of uh, like scientific uh, scientific curiosity, I guess. But I think the value we can get uh, out of it will actually be quite limited. I, I want to okay. say something on the mammoth talk too, because in the Donnelly's uh, uh, book, I was kind of uh, blown back because I've I've heard a few different uh, animals that were like the the main animals of Atlantis. But um, one of them was the elephant. And then I find it really interesting that, um, you know, India was very fond of the elephants as well. And I thought maybe that might be a, a pull from the old world into Diluvian world. Well, certainly Plato had never seen a mammoth. So if a mammoth existed on Atlantis, he would have just called them mm. elephants. So, uh, that was probably like the, uh, the closest thing. But it's, it's definitely very interesting because it's a very surprising location for elephants. Like you wouldn't think of the Mid-Atlantic Ocean or a place where you would find elephants, uh, not, not at least the African or the Indian elephant. That's what Plato would have been more accustomed to. Uh, but if you think about uh, mammoths, uh, then uh, there is uh, actually a very distinct possibility that mammals also existed on these now sunken mid-Atlantic lemmas. We find mammals in Siberia, we find mammals in North America, in Alaska, so pretty much like mm. all over the region. So if we believe that back then, the time of the last Ice Age, a land bridge existed uh, between Europe and America, maybe not a continuous land bridge, but at least a sequence of islands, then mammals could have existed uh, on, on that land, at least at the, at the most northern latitudes. I mean, yeah, and who who knows, you know, with our touch of like electromagnetism and physics, like maybe we were like we had a different form of transportation as opposed to just wooden ships. But that is not anything I've found too much too much information on of travel. And it's kind of off topic, but uh, uh, Roman asked you what you thought about dinosaurs, and and dinosaurs do kind of relate it. I've seen some. Of like the stones that come out of, uh, Ica in I'm not Peru. sure where, but yeah, like the, Mexico the or stones. something. No, it's, it's a site in Peru. Yeah, the, oh, it's the Peru stones. that show man like riding dinosaurs. Allegedly, 
Yes. Yeah. Yes, is sir. there is there any Atlantis mythology or anything that you hear no. about that of them riding no. some type of uh, dinosaur or serpent? Because there's a lot of serpent mythology. Well, yes. I was, was going to ask about serpents too. Serpent, yes. Uh, uh, dinosaurs. So I, I personally consider it seen the Ica stone. So I've seen similar artifacts from a Cambaro in, in Mexico, allegedly big dinosaurs. So I'm very unconvinced uh, by their authenticity. I think uh, okay. these are most likely a fraud, a hoax that was perpetrated. Uh, uh, Maybe even in, in some cases, I do believe that in the case of the Ica stones, Javier Cabrera was like the discoverer of these stones, was actually in good faith. So, uh, I don't think he tried to deliberately uh, perpetrate uh, a fraud, but uh, the, the, I think it was really the local people just like played on his uh, like credulity and uh, mm. like these uh, these stones. So I would just like leave these uh, these artifacts up uh, out of the out of the equation. Now, if we also think about the, the the distance in time, we're talking about millions and millions of years. So I, I would rule out uh, dinosaurs, but if you, if you talk about like uh, reptiles, snakes, serpents, uh, there is a, a very interesting theme here because in throughout mm-hmm. uh, all these ancient mythologies, uh, whenever they talk about the global cataclysm of the end of the last ice age, almost invariably the uh, enemy or like the, the causing agent of this cataclysm is depicted as a snake. And it's, it's very interesting that the snake would be used because uh, uh, the snake is actually a very obvious uh, symbol for comets. Uh, we find it throughout the world to oh, designate uh, pretty much the same thing as this idea of uh, a tail. There is a beautiful example in Mexico at a site called Xochicalco, the Pyramid of the Third Serpent, that uh, very clearly, very obviously shows uh, the destruction of uh, an island uh, and uh, you can see these giant snakes uh, that coil around uh, the island, around uh, the pyramid. It's quite clear from the imagery associated with them that uh, some sort of a cosmic phenomenon like a comet uh, quite possibly is implied. Wow. Hey, Marco, I know you said you got to uh, wrap up around 10 o'clock your time. Mm-hmm. Um, that leaves us with like about 12 to 15 minutes. So does mm-hmm. Dan, do you want to um, get any of your really good Erky Berkies out? <laughs> uh, well, I kind of wanted to talk about like the mass exodus of Atlantis mm-hmm. and, and kind of like who the gods were and maybe where some of the people from Atlantis went, like what other lands did they ex- mm-hmm. go over to yep. and who were they in Atlantis so we can kind of get an idea of mm-hmm. who those people were and, and where they uh, exodused to. Yep. So what I suggest in the book is that there were in fact multiple migrations uh, from uh, Atlantis. Uh, um, they were largely caused uh, by the geological instability of uh, these uh, mid-Atlantic landmass. Now, if you think about uh, the sinking uh, of uh, Atlantis, even though 
Plato uh, suggests that it was a, a very sudden uh, event. Uh, he actually states that Atlantis sank in a single day and night. Uh, however, if we look at the evidence uh, from the field of geology, oceanography, the study of the Earth's crust under the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean, uh, what that shows is that uh, the sinking of this Atlantic landmass was uh, at times gradual, at times catastrophic, but it certainly occupied uh, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of years. So it was by no means uh, uh, a point-in-time event, uh, as uh, Plato rather seems to, to suggest. Now, what I, what I do suggest in the book is that these uh, different uh, episodes of sinking in the Mid-Atlantic Ocean actually trigger mass migrations of people. Uh, some of the most recent ones mm. occurred uh, at the end of the last ice age, at uh, the time of the Younger Rise Cataclysm. That's when I, I think uh, probably the last major episode of sinking uh, of land in the Mid-Atlantic Ocean occurred, at least up there. that's when uh, Atlantis lost probably the majority of uh, its landmass. There is evidence uh, that land at the mid-Atlantic ridge uh, might have sunk by over 3,000 meters uh, within a span of uh, probably a geological instant. Uh, they could be uh, years, could be centuries, but still like a relatively short period of time. Uh, but uh, that was not the end uh, of uh, Atlantis itself. Uh, there were still, there still are islands uh, above water in the region of the Azores that are truly like the highest mountain peaks mm-hmm. of uh, Atlantis. Now, it's quite curious, but if you imagine to drain uh, the Atlantic Ocean of all of its water, what you would see would be an immense mountain chain uh, that stretches uh, almost from pole to pole. It's called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And uh, again, yeah. imagining of draining the Atlantic Ocean of all its water, that mountain chain would uh, be as long as the combined length of the Rocky Mountains and the Andes of South America with heights comparable to the Himalayas. So we have a truly massive mountain chain. This is all underwater right now. You only have the mountain tops that are sticking out of the water in the region of the Azores Plateau and the Madeiras. There is evidence there that is. more mountain peaks of that uh, uh, great submerged mountain chain uh, mm-hmm. were still above water until relatively recent times. We're talking probably about the European Bronze Age or between like 3,000, 3,500 uh, years ago. And this is when it situated the last sinking of what uh, uh, were probably still the last Atlantean islands uh, still, still above water, whose memory uh, has been preserved because they were so much closer to us in the uh, writings of many ancient geographers and cartographers uh, that talked about uh, Tartessos, Scheria, Thule, a number of islands uh, uh, that were clearly situated in the North Atlantic Ocean that no longer exist, uh, uh, but quite interestingly and remarkably seem to coincide if you actually plot their supposed location based on ancient accounts with a map of the Atlantic seafloor, they seem to coincide with the location of submerged seamounts of uh, submerged plateaus uh, that would have been certainly above water during uh, the last ice age and probably also after that. So I suggest that from these lands that uh, survivors uh, and refugees 
fled and migrated to, to both sides of the Atlantic. They reached uh, on the one hand, they would have settled to Egypt, uh, the Middle East. Uh, I do believe uh, that uh, these uh, Atlantean uh, uh, survivors will also form the body of the so-called Sea Peoples uh, that uh, through multiple waves of migrations, uh, towards uh, the uh, European and North African Atlantic seaboard and into the Mediterranean, uh, they they were actually responsible for uh, much of the flourishing of the Bronze Age uh, in uh, in Europe, uh, but also on the other side of the Atlantic, that's more or less the same time period when you have the flourishing of Olmec civilization in uh, Mesoamerica. So that again, like strongly suggests the arrival of of, uh, uh, survivors or refugees from some lost civilization that brought with them much more advanced type of culture and civilization. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Did you say Tartessos? Yes. Yes. That was an island? Well, it's, it's debated uh, what, it, uh, what it really was. It was certainly located uh, um, somewhere uh, either in southern Spain or off the coast of Spain. And it existed uh, as a, an independent kingdom until at least uh, 700 BC when it is mentioned uh, in inscriptions mm. from uh, Mesopotamia. Uh, there are accounts that were preserved by Roman and Greek historians of uh, Tartessos uh, possessing a culture, a civilization that was over 7,000 years old. So I think there is strong evidence to suggest that Tartessos was mm. one of the post-Atlantean kingdoms. It was a very direct heir of uh, Atlantis, maybe one of the last Atlantean lands still, mm. still above water. And the most likely reason why we've never found any remains of, uh, of Tartessos is probably it's currently uh, underwater. It begins to be, it sunk and uh, is presently submerged. Uh, in the in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Spain. I always uh, I was lucky enough to when I was in college take oceanography and physical geography and geology, and it really really helped paint the picture in my mind of how the body of the Earth works, and also having lived on a volcanic island for a decade. When I was in Hawaii back in 2018, we had a major eruption. And within, within one week's time, 32 fissures were, came into land. And a fissure was a split, a literal split in the land. And there was 32 of them. And the, the whole island is, you can drive around the entire thing in five hours. So imagine 32 big splits in the land where massive amounts of uh, uh, refrigerator-sized volcano magma balls were coming out. And this happened within <laughs> a stand of a week and an entire mile of new land was created. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, sits on an ancient, ancient fault line. Um, it's the same Aleutian chain, they call it, the Aleutian chain that connects all the way back to Australia and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And the same with the Mid-Atlantic Ridge uh, or Drift and what have you, uh, that mountain range, it's you can see it underwater. And those islands were at one time also above water. So, you know, and that's why I, I think people think that, that that's Lumeria. You have Lumeria in the Pacific, which were these island ranges. And 
which would explain the, the time that California was an island as you know, uh, let me ask you this as my closing question. What's your opinion on Pangea, modern science Pangea, understanding of um, the Earth's celestial body as, as a living being in Atlantis? Yeah, I think this, this whole idea of continental drift and uh, Pangea area underlies a gradualistic approach uh, to geology that uh, uh, suggests that these uh, changes uh, in the uh, like shape and form of continents and the oceans, they only occur over uh, millions, hundreds of millions of years. So there are very slow movement. But what that ignores is the fact that uh, truly cataclysmic events, uh, which we have evidence have occurred throughout the course of Earth's history. And so these cataclysmic events may have significantly accelerated uh, some of these processes. Um, so the picture that they actually uh, draw of uh, the sinking and the disappearance of Atlantis is a mix of both gradualism because there were certainly periods of gradual sinking uh, of uh, that mid-Atlantic landmass. Uh, there was, however, accelerated by cataclysm, particularly uh, towards the end of the last ice age, the time of the Younger Dryas cataclysm. Uh, there might have been uh, uh, celestial uh, events, celestial dynamics uh, as well. They might have influenced uh, or might have triggered some of these cataclysm, uh, like solar flares, like uh, comet or meteoric impact. So they would have significantly accelerated uh, these, uh, this project, accomplishing, in fact, in a matter of instance, uh, what would have otherwise taken millions of years of uh, very slow geological processes. All right, let me ask you one more question then, uh, <laughs> just because this will be my Go final ahead. one. What is your opinion on craterous Earth, a, some sort of um, place to exist that might have extra magnetic qualities or extra uh, crystalline qualities that's underneath Earth's crust? I think we know very little about the actual structure of the Earth, uh, uh, even just probably like a few few hundred feet uh, below our ground. Our knowledge is very, very limited. Uh, particularly if we talk about uh, huge depths of thousands of miles uh, underneath the mantle and uh, towards uh, towards Earth's core. So there are, there are a number of theories uh, that suggest, for instance, that the Earth's core is a giant crystal. And so uh, in a way that may, may be related with the ideas that certain monuments uh, like pyramids and other ancient structures were built as uh, harmonic resonators. They were meant to resonate at the same frequency as uh, the Earth in a way like uh, be able to resonate uh, with uh, the Earth's uh, crystalline core. Um, again, I think these are interesting possibilities. Uh, um, there needs to be much more research to actually demonstrate uh, these uh, these possibilities, but I definitely think it's a very interesting uh, avenue for research. Yeah, definitely, to say the least, huh? <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us today, Marco. We really appreciate it. All the way from Italy, uh, his book is The Empires of Atlantis, The Origin of Ancient Civilizations and the Mystery Traditions Throughout the Ages. 
just go check out the book. Do you have any other places where people can go find you and check you out at? Yes. So, so I have uh, my own website. Uh, it's uh, www.marcovigato.com. Um, there you can also find links uh, to my blog uh, where I post about my expeditions, uh, my recent discoveries, uh, particularly in Mexico, uh, Central and uh, South America. Uh, there is also a link uh, to uh, my own foundation that actually promotes and sponsors archaeological research, uh, also also trying to uncover some of the evidence of these ancient advanced civilizations around the world. I could talk to you all day, my friend, uh, <laughs> but thank you so much. We appreciate it. Um, thank you, Fire Tribe, for listening. And wake, wake up. You are listening to Rising from the Ashes Podcast.